0: Morning. You will may notice me turning my head, catch coughs. Um, it's not COVID. It's not pneumonia. I've had chest x-rays. I've had all of this stuff go on. As a matter of fact, um, Tuesday the 15th, I have to go see a pulmonologist to do some testing to figure out why it is that I've had a cough since September and it won't go away. So if you all wouldn't mind, praying for me about that, I would appreciate those prayers for sure. I, uh, I'm i tired of coughing. Just be honest, there's where I'm at with it. So we are going to be in Second Peter today. We're going to be taking a look at verses 4 through 10. We're going to read um, all of Second uh, Peter verses 1 through 16, just kind of see what Peter's doing in context and why he's writing it, kind of the way he's writing it. But we're going to focus on verses 4 through 10 here. So let's if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Second uh, Peter chapter 2. Let's hear the word of the Lord. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destructive, is, destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly "'knows how to rescue the godly from trials "'and to keep the unrighteous under punishment "'until the day of judgment, "'especially those who indulge in the lust "'of defiling passion and despise authority. "'Bold and willful, they do not tremble. "'They are blasphemous. "'They blaspheme the glorious ones. "'Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, "'do not pronounce blasphemous judgment "'against them before the Lord.' But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming all matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice and steady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked by his own transgression, a speechless donkey with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we just thank you so much today for your word. We thank you that that as we look at this, we can remember that you are a just and holy God. And Father God, we want to remember your justice. I ask, Lord, that as we dive into this time of worship through the hearing and, and the response to your word, that you would, you would speak through me, you would speak clearly, and that your word would shine. Father, let us take this in. Let it convict us. Let it challenge us. Let it change us so that we are more in your image and we glorify you more and more every day. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Peter's issuing a warning here about false teachers. We see that. That's really kind of what chapter two is really all about. And in verses one through three, he he kind of shows the readers the potential... Uh, influence and the real motives behind those false teachers and they seek to destroy the witness of the true followers of Christ and they seek to subvert the work of the church and do it for their own personal gain and because of their own personal greed and then in verses 4 through 10 Peter reminds the reader that that even though you're down you're depressed you're you're feeling beat up by all these false teachers and folks falling away and, and the gospel being subverted that God's going to exact judgment on these false teachers. And he really begins to remind us of that in the second half of verse 3 when he says their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. See, God has not forgotten about the punishment due these false prophets, these false teachers. He's not forgotten about it. God is not taking a nap on this. The punishment due to these false teachers looms over their head and is waiting for God's appointed time to be exacted. So what we see here is that people who who deny the return of Christ or people who even deny the existence of Jesus, they're dismissing the promise that God will bring about a righteous judgment. They mock God by their selfishness and their godless living. They they operate like God's judgment is, is sleeping but God, nor his judgment, neither one sleeps. God has not forgotten justice here. He promises to be just by condemning the unrighteous. And as Peter fleshes this out, this promise of justice, he gets very detailed in proving that God will indeed exact justice on these false teachers. And he does so by using some analogies from the Old Testament, right? Right? Uh, he uses a technique that he would have borrowed really from the rabbis of his youth. This uh, is an idea that you take this smaller premise, this smaller idea, and you move it to a larger premise with an if then like statement. If we know this one thing happened, we know this other thing will happen even much more so. And so he establishes these four smaller premises. From the Old Testament about God's judgment. And at the end, he closes out the section with this larger premise, the main point that God will judge the false teachers and rescue the godly. And he starts off that first small premise in verse four, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept in judgment. Now, Peter doesn't specify what angels God's speaking of specifically, the ones that sinned, is what we know. He doesn't even specify what sin they committed. But when we look at all of his other examples coming from the Old Testament in this section, it's and really all of them really coming even from the book of Genesis. It's kind of fair for us to say that this probably refers to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 when some rebellious angels had sexual relations with women here on earth, right? And God cast them into hell for this. And and he's kept them in chains until their judgment, as Peter tells us. So it appears that these rebellious angels are being held in a a special place known and designed by God until the day of final judgment. I get it. And as we look at some of this, there's going to be some other mystery pop up. This is kind of a, a mysterious verse. But even through questions we might have about this verse or anything that might pop up in our head and go, what what in the world? Take away the big idea. Don't miss the main point of Peter's argument here. Peter's saying if mighty angels who had been in the presence of God, mighty angels who we know, like one angel destroyed 10,000 soldiers, mighty strong angels, these angels who acted wickedly towards God, if they can't escape God's judgment, how much more will these mortal men who are these false teachers, how much more will they fall to the judgment of God? If the angels can't escape it, there's no way these mortal men can. See, God has proven himself just from the beginning of time. He's proven his justice over and over and over again. And he held the angels who sinned against him accountable to justice. And those who have been faithful will be spared such judgment. He moves into the second small premise. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, right? He says that now, Now Peter's using the story of Noah to remind us of God's swift destruction of people given over to their own sensualities. Jesus used the story of Noah in a very similar way in Luke chapter 17 verses 26 through 29. So so Peter's borrowing from Jesus a little bit as he's teaching this. But but look what he said here. He's, He's used this phrase, didn't spare, right? Didn't spare twice in a row. He He didn't spare the angels. And if he did not spare the ancient world, this should just bring home a couple of things for us here as we're looking at it. One, that God's judgment is real. He did not spare his judgment. It's real. Two, God is not changing his mind about judging the world. Those are the two things we can look at that when he says, did not spare here. See, in Noah's time, God saw a wicked and evil generation. A a generation so wicked and evil that it was only Noah and his family that looked righteous out there amongst the world. God protected Noah and his family and two of every beast and every crawling thing. But the rest of humanity and the rest of creation were not spared. The judgment of a holy and just God. The world will not be spared the judgment of a holy and just God. In Noah's time and in a time yet to come, this is the truth. Now, now Peter does take the time here to point out that God preserved Noah. Noah. Man, this should be super comforting and super encouraging to us. right? As, as Noah was a herald of righteousness, some translations may say a preacher of righteousness. So here was Noah, a herald of righteousness in, in this corrupt and wicked society. His service to God stood in direct opposition to the people all around him. He proclaimed a repentance from sin, And all of this should be comforting because it wasn't just Noah that was preserved, but his household. What we're seeing here is a minority people. The believers, the true followers of God, a minority group of people, people who followed Yahweh and God preserved them when no one else listened to them or the only acknowledgement they received was mocking and strife. See, false teachers attract crowds. False teachers attract followers. True followers of Christ, man, that can be discouraging. It can be really discouraging to look out and see just a handful of folks really listening. And and I'm, and I'm seeing this, I'm thinking this dispersed church, this church who had been in Jerusalem and then sent out these Christians who are now living in in places that, that were unfamiliar to them, that were not the home base. I'm sure that these churches that Peter's writing to felt lonely, felt discouraged. Probably could see themselves a little bit in Noah's situation, a wicked and unjust society around them. And here they are, heralds of the truth, heralds of righteousness, And no one's listening. But take heart here. Take heart. Take some encouragement from this. God preserved Noah. See, God is faithful to preserve and to protect his people. Take heart in that. Take heart in knowing that God is faithful to preserve and to protect his people. We get to the third small premise. He continues on and it says in Scripture, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Here we see Peter showing the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah as a foreshadowing of what is to come. The wickedness of these two cities was so great that God reduced them to ashes and they were never rebuilt. And I think about that. He reduced them to ashes. We often read in the Old Testament about cities being reduced to rubble. right? Jerusalem, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, had been reduced to rubble. Well, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah Rebuilt Jerusalem. Sodom and Gomorrah were reduced to ashes. and could never be rebuilt. Condemned them to extinction. They were no more. See, God did this as a warning to all. This is a warning to those of that day and a warning to those yet to come That ungodliness and following ungodliness leads to destruction. The way in which God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah is a foreshadow of the fiery physical punishment of hell. Peter's reminding us of this that hell is real, and it is punishment. And it's interesting that he he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah a little bit. I I find that interesting because I, I really think that the cultural mindset of Sodom and Gomorrah was not that different than our own current cultural mindset. They were an affluent community. And they had grown soft in their affluence. Their affluence then brought about some immorality and as they did that and they got more and more immorals, they grew way, way, they had decided that they had outgrown God. They were smarter than understanding a God now. They were, they were better than that, had outgrown the need for that. And any society, any culture that finds themselves having outgrown God will find themselves <coughs> facing God's justice, God's judgment and God's condemnation. We cannot outgrow the creator of the universe. And he will remind us of that. We get to that fourth small premise here in in, uh, in verse 7. And it's directly tied to the third one in verse 6. And it says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds what that they saw and heard. This is another one that's a little puzzling to me. Much like the angels and what that means up in in, in verse uh, 4, here we see this. Now, if if you know the whole story of Lot, you're you're probably like me, puzzled as to why Peter's calling him righteous. Lot stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah when he had been told he should leave. He'd been warned by Abraham. There were some things we get out of Sodom and Gomorrah that happens with Lot that's even creepier. Uh, it's hard to to take that away, but. There's a couple of reasons why we might think of Lot as righteous. If we're looking at Lot, Lot still believed in God, still had some faith in God. And in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, no one else had any faith, any belief in God. So all in all, Lot looked righteous amongst that community. And I'll be the great one second one is this because god chose to rescue lot from sin surrounding him that makes lot righteous for this moment in history it's one of those moments where <clears throat> peter is showing us that god divinely judges and, and and he perfectly carries out justice on the ungodly while also preserving and rescuing the righteous peter describes lot here as being greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked but having been exposed to the sinfulness of a wicked and evil community for so long, his own moral compass was struggling to still find true north. Look at verse 8 again. say it's interesting. For as the righteous man lived among them days after day, he was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. It looks like Peter's saying that Lot was at his breaking point. There was so much wickedness around him, so much that that he was, he was just, he couldn't take it. He was just about ready to give in completely. And maybe what God rescued Lot from was just that. God rescued Lot from walking away, from what little bit of faith he had. It's a possibility. See, we, we know that Lot had a whole lot more issues than National Geographic. And we go reading the story a lot in Genesis. There's a lot going on. But the righteousness of God and those who are considered the righteous of God are never to be considered perfect in Scripture. Noah, we learned shortly after the flood, had a little bit of a drinking problem, right? <clears throat> we look at Kings David and King Solomon. Both considered righteous men. Both had an eye for the ladies in a way that they shouldn't have. The Apostle Paul had been a persecutor of the early church and was an accessory to murder. Even Peter, writing us this letter, was known to have a little bit of a temper. See, it's God and God alone who makes one righteous. Hear me out on that. God and God alone makes you righteous. See, we are not able to make that call on others. One of the distinctions Scripture makes about Lot in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is his willingness and his efforts to protect those angels that came to visit him when the crowds gathered. This took some courage. This took a little bit of of maybe some, some, some faith that was... Maybe laying dormant to spur back up. Say, this is not right. Here he was living in this depraved environment, but he knew still a little bit of right and wrong that that God had put in him. See, I think Lot should serve here, as Peter's writing about it, as a warning to us and as an example to us. We'll never be able to completely shelter ourselves from all the wicked, all the evil that is around us. But it doesn't mean we give up. It doesn't mean that we welcome it in. It doesn't mean that we let it overtake us. See, we're told numerous times in the Word to flee from sinful desires. And what happens when we don't is that our faith will become dulled to the sin around us. And I think we see that faith dulled in Lot. See, the earliest readers of this letter, they may have seen Lot as an example of of weariness and an example of frustration that that sets in as, as we're inundated with worldliness. Peter shows him as a reason to keep resisting the false teachers that they're being inundated with. He shows them as as a reason to keep resisting the temptations of the world. And that's important for us to see. The story of Lot also shows us that God has a perfect record in preserving and protecting his people during trials and temptations. Even when our faith is flawed, even when our faith is injured, God is still faithful to his people. It's amazing to me. God is still faithful to his people, even in moments of us not being exactly faithful to him. He can turn us around. We see all of these smaller premises leading to this big premise, this big idea. And that happens in verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. Until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This type of rabbinical debate that, that Peter's kind of bringing here allows for the smaller premises to be read directly before the big premises. So you could take verse 4, read verse 4, and stick verse 9 right at the end of verse 4. And it would be something kind of like, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially to those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And you could do the same thing with verse five. And you could do the same thing with verse six. And you could do the same thing with verses seven and eight. It was so on and so on. So what he's really saying here is this, is this idea that if we know verses 4 through 8 are true, and they are true, then how much more true are verses 9 and 10? And since verses 4 through 8 are true, then how much more true are verses 9 through 10? God truly does know how to rescue the godly from trials. He truly does know how to do that. And for the first readers of this letter, that would have brought about so much hope of divine deliverance from these false teachers and their influence. (laughs) Because verses 4 through 8 are true, and verses 9 through 10 are even more true, then God will certainly keep the unrighteous under punishment the day of till final judgment. He will punish them in a partial preliminary way before the day of final judgment. Uh, the best way I think I can describe this is, is it's, it's like being held until you're sentencing. You're not released on your own cognizance this way. And it especially applies to those who have defiling passions and despise authority. Peter's talking about these false teachers. So what does that mean for us? It means a couple of things. First, it means God rescues the godly from trials. Now let's take a look at this though. When we look at Peter's examples here of Noah and Lot, we see that the trials they were rescued from were external trials. Right? It was evil and wickedness that had surrounded them, not their own sin. Not necessarily their own temptations. If they fell to that, they fell to that. And we see that in both of these stories. But God rescued them from these external circumstances, from the evil and the wickedness that had surrounded them. God's going to use these trials to strengthen our faith and to mature our relationship with Him. God rescued Lot and Noah out of trials, not away from trials trials. You see the difference? A little grammar lesson here, how prepositions work, right? Out of means that they still went through it, but they got out on the other side. Away from would be like God pulled them out of, the, out of the trial altogether. That's not what happened. See, we are not promised to never face trials. We're not promised to never face difficult circumstances, but we are promised that God will give us enough grace to see us through them, that his grace will be sufficient for you and I to make it through the problems, the trials that we face. And I want you to understand that the the biggest danger any of us face when trials arrive is apostasy. there's There's a $2 seminary word, apostasy, right? That means falling away from the faith altogether. Noah and Lot both had their struggles. Neither man was perfect. But when they were confronted by the evils around them, they alone stood for God. God will protect you from falling away from the face when the external trials of an evil and fallen world confront you. If you are God's, when all is said and done, he will not let you forsake him. When the dust settles, you are still God's. Something else here to notice about Noah and Lot. You see how this is the gospel at work? Do you see that? that that neither man did anything of his own accord to merit God's rescue? They these are not self-made sinless men who earned any favor before a holy and just God. They were rescued simply because of who God is. Not because of anything they had done. They received by faith God's judgment and God's instructions. And when they received that by faith, they also received God's righteousness, as it was put upon them. He in <coughs> Excuse me, he imputed it on them. God considered them righteous because they trusted him. And this is how it works with Jesus as well, right? that Jesus doesn't save us because we clean up real nice and do good things to earn his salvation. Jesus saves us because we act in faith for what he has already done for us. We are justified by faith and faith in Christ alone. Peter writes this to remind the readers, first century readers and today, that It is a work of God and God alone that delivers us from our present trials. It's not because of anything we have done to earn God's deliverance, but we are delivered because of our knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, as he talks about in the introduction of this letter. The second thing it means for us is that God reserves the godless for torment. Now, this is tough. This is one of those things that that becomes really difficult now in modern society. But you keep saying, pastor, that God is love and God is all-loving. And if God is an all-loving God, how can there be eternal punishment for sin? Because his love is not the same as our love. His love is not conditional. His love is beyond us. His justice is beyond our justice. A loving parent will correct and punish a child. A loving God will have punishment for the sin against him. See, while God does protect and preserve the godly, and we see that through Scripture, he simultaneously keeps the ungodly on track for final judgment. Peter wants his readers to know and to be assured of the destiny of the false teachers who have been harassing them. And I think it's great that he's saying, reminder, God's taking care of this. It ain't your fight. Go to bed, cover up, kiss your wife, sleep comfortably. God has this under control. Point out the false teachers, but don't go attacking them directly. God's got it. Don't worry about it. God wants you to know that what awaits all of those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about this. If God did not spare angels who sinned, there is no way false teachers are going to get out of, get a, get a, get out of jail free card. There is a fixed and final judgment for those whose lives and ministries are are characterized <coughs> by seeking out their sensual desires, filling their own senses, whether it be that sense of ego, that sense of greed, whatever sense it is. There's a final place for them, and it's fixed on that day of judgment for those whose, whose lives and ministries have all been all about personal gain rather than kingdom growth. This should compel us as believers in Christ to continually check our motives, to continually check our attitudes before God. It should compel us to share the gospel with those that we know who are lost. It should compel us to pray that God would soften their hearts to the gospel message. It should compel us to pray that they would be receptive to the gospel. Because whether we like it or not, God's condemnation is real. And God's condemnation is is rooted in the fact that he is a just and holy God. It is his justice that brings about this condemnation. We talk about here in America how the the punishment should fit the crime. We, we, We talk about that. But we also then kind of look at, is, is justice then played out to, to the one who is sinned against or the one who the crime was committed against? Our sin, our sin is against almighty God, creator of the universe, who is eternal, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, who is glorious, who is holy, and who is just. if we look at that's who we have committed the crime against, then the punishment for our sins needs to correspond appropriately to that offense. We know from Scripture that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. And as the righteous judge, he calls all creation into account. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have comfort in knowing that Jesus himself drank the cup of wrath for us. The work done on the cross satisfied that anger for those who believe and call on the name of Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you can take comfort in that. if you know jesus you should also share the message of hope that he brings with others and i'm going to say this if you don't know jesus if if this is stirred a little bit of fear and trepidation in you knowing that a god who is just and good does punish the ungodly i want you to know today that you can know jesus I want to have that conversation with you about knowing Jesus. I pray today that you would come to know Jesus Christ. Not just to avoid this punishment. But to have a relationship with God Almighty, creator of the universe. Because you can only do that through Jesus Christ, his son. Know him today. Father, we just thank you so much. So much for your word and how it speaks truth to us. <laughs> I pray, Lord, that as we, we go from here, those of us who know Christ, who have a, have a, a fellowship with him, a, a relationship with him, who, who have an assurance of our salvation through what he has done on the cross for us, I pray that we would go out and continue to carry the message to be, as as Peter describes Noah, heralds of righteousness, proclaiming the gospel truth of him into the community you have given us. Father, when we get discouraged, when we get heartbroken over what we see as sinful nature and, and just the lostness of where we are, Remind us to seek you out, to be preserved from those trials, to help us get through them. And Father, for those who who in our community, maybe don't know Christ, those who are close to us in our inner circles who don't know Christ. Father, I ask that you would begin to soften their hearts to the gospel. You would encourage and spur in us as a church, as as a body of believers, an urgency to take the message of Jesus Christ to them. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.